Welcome to the Outdoor Mentor, where the star of the show is the mentee. I'm your host, Colonel Retired Mike Abel, and every show I will be interviewing someone I took hunting, fishing, scouting, hiking, or camping. It might be someone new to the outdoors, or it might be someone experienced who is trying something new. The goal of the show is to inspire people who want to get started or who want to expand their outdoor experience to do so. By listening to someone who already took the leap, this show is not experts talking, but people who took the leap and jumping into the outdoors personally. Today's guest is none other than the chairman of Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Mr. Stephen Flagg. Stephen is one of the plank holders in Kentucky BHA and stepped up during our first organizational meeting to take the reins and run the show. I was very happy to play second fiddle as the vice chair. And Stephen is an experienced outdoorsman and passionate about our public lands and waters. He's also a mentor. He and I both found ourselves thrown into a Department of Fish and Wildlife Field to Fork mentoring event last year when the department didn't have enough mentors and a friend, a mutual friend, called to ask if Kentucky BHA would step up. Steph and I immediately stepped up and we've, made a, we've maintained a relationship with our mentee and continue to hunt with them today. So without further delay, friends, I give you Stephen Flagg. What's hey. up, Stephen? Nothing much, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yep, right on. Um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, brother. Okay. I um, guess we'll start at the beginning. Uh, originally, I'm from the eastern part of Kentucky, uh, Pike County, and lived in the small town of Phelps, which uh, you can't go any further east. Without uh, being in Virginia. <laughs> or West Virginia. I could yeah. be in either one of them about right. 10 minutes from my home. Uh, so, grew up in coal country. Um, of course, we... Would go out and explore, walk around in the mountains and everything, but we always knew that it wasn't ours. It was always a timber company or a coal company's land that you were trespassing on, and if they found you, they let you know that you weren't supposed to be there. Um, and that's what I just grew up knowing, you know. So I didn't grow up in a hunting household. Uh, we did go fishing quite a bit, uh, even entering bass fishing tournaments in Virginia, Tennessee. Um, just my dad was great. He helped me. Uh, Understand that uh, it's okay to spend a little bit of the money that you work really hard on to go on adventures uh, that make you feel good about um, going in and going to work every day. Uh, so we'd go do, on, go do those fishing trips. Um, graduated forever ago, in most people's mind, <laughs> 1990. Um, traveled to uh, Moorhead for Moorhead State University. And uh, that was really my first exposure to public lands. I was right outside of my dorm. Um, after graduating from college, moved uh, moved close to Lexington, and have been here for over two decades. Uh, primarily working in the automotive industry and in manufacturing, and uh, luckily enough, uh, started running this into some people at work who introduced me to hunting, took me out, got me interested, trained me up, taught me how to run a turkey call where to hang a tree stand and why. And uh, over the course of those 
15, 20 years of hunting, uh, it's basically become um, number three priority in my life. You got you know family, work, and hunting. Nice. It's a. Uh, it's. You know, at some point we were all mentored. Uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there that that has found a way to be successful from reading a book. But it's cool to hear the people that work mentored you. Yeah. My mom and dad met in the Army, refused. Mom refused to go back to southeast Kentucky. Uh, dad refused to go back to the Shenandoah Valley Dairy Farms. And uh, dad got a job just out of Vietnam in Metro D.C. And uh, so I'd spend summers with my grandfather either in uh, – actually, he retired. He didn't stay in Kentucky. He moved right across the border to La Follette, Tennessee. And um, so I'd go down there and spend time with him. Uh, or I go out to Shenandoah Valley and spend time with the other grandfather who's still on a dairy farm growing up. But you know the the trespassing that you did on the on the coal or the timber companies, <laughs> I did it too. I used to sneak on the back of Patuxent Wildlife Preserve, which was it actually bunched bunched up uh, or uh, butted up to the NASA facility right there in Maryland. So NASA had a huge swath of land; it still does. And then the Patuxent Wildlife Preserve was right there. They butted up to each other, and there was a there was a little corner of it that touched the Capitol Beltway. And if you snuck under the Capitol Beltway at a, at an old place called Indian Creek, you could be on. So I was trespassing on federal on federal land, and I'm I'm glad the statute of limitations has expired on that. Yeah. So we're both children trespassers. Yeah. Um. <laughs> since I've got to know know you, you really have a very strong connection. Um, with the Daniel Boone National Forest and and a, and a true love for the Pioneer Weapons area, how'd that come about? Uh, well, like I said, I went to school in Moorhead. Um, it was the it's really close to the northern terminus of the Sheltowee Trace Trail. But if you're living on campus at one of the dorms, you can actually go up by the lake there on campus, and it's about a one mile hike up on a connector trail. And you know, basically from your dorm room. You can go for a walk for a mile, and you're on a 300-plus-mile interstate trail that travels up and down the spine of the Appalachia. And that was, you know, that's the longest trail in Kentucky. And um, as most of us are, (laughs) if it took a quarter to get out of sight or to go around the world, I didn't have enough money to get out of sight when I was in college. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, uh you know, walk from your dorm with a backpack on. It's the right. first time I ever went camping. First time I ever went hiking. No kidding. Yep. So I'd, you know, grown up in eastern Kentucky, had never seen a deer. Well, there weren't any back then. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, um, driving into campus there when it gets to October, November, the rut's coming in. You know, you're seeing deer standing on the side of the road. Um, so it was just, it might as well have been Wild Kingdom. You know, I'd stepped into this netherworld of, thousands and thousands of acres that I could just go explore and uh so that really brought was the first awareness of you know okay this is public land I can I don't have to ask somebody's permission I can just drive You're out no there no longer trespassing right I could just go out there right. and park my car at this trailhead and leave or I could walk out of my dorm walk around the lake do anything that I wanted to do and then uh specifically for the pioneer weapons area there's a spot there that um don't think it's open anymore. I think there was a fire, uh, but it was called Tater Knob Lookout Tower. Mm. Is there anything more c- Kentucky than Tater? T a t e r. Tater Knob Lookout. Purposefully Tower. named Tater. <laughs> um, it's where uh, 
before we had planes to fly over our national forest, we had these 10 by 10 oh, that's right. shacks yeah. built up on top of these pedestals on top of mountains where people yeah. would live. Fire, t- fire lookout tower or something? Yep. So yeah, this, right on. So this was a historical one that was marked. It had pictures of the guy and his family that lived there. Oh, wow. Um, you could go park, climb up to the top, climb up into the tower and see the view that this person would have had. Uh, but one evening, um, my best friend in college, Brian, uh, we were driving out there to go climb up the tower right at the edge of uh, the day in October. Mm. Trees were changing colors. Mm. And, of course, when it was still legal to ride in the back of a truck without having your seatbelt on. <laughs> right. Aging myself there. Um in the course of that one or two mile drive from the time we pulled in to the parking spot for the lookout tower, I saw three whitetail bucks. Mm-hmm. Never seen a buck before. Right. And here's three deer in a 10-minute span right. with big antlers on top of their heads <laughs> yep. just standing there. Intoxicating. I made a decision in the back of that truck I was going to try to learn to hunt. Yeah, right on. And... That's the only place I'd ever seen yeah. a buck. So why wouldn't that be where I wanted to hunt? Sure. <laughs> um, of course, referencing no money, <laughs> that didn't come to pass while I was in college. Uh, but once I did move to uh, move to Lexington, got a job. Right. Uh, the first first firearm I wanted to buy to go hunting, I want a muzzleloader. I want to go to Pioneer Weapons Area. Right on. Only to find out that I'd bought an inline and it was not acceptable for use oh, there. Oh, no. But it made me appreciate that area more, not less. Because I realized I could hunt with that inline everywhere. Ah, I see. But that small 7,000 acres of the Pioneer Weapons area, it attracts people from all over. If you go up there, you'll see people camping with Indiana plates, Tennessee plates, people in full buckskin. Shooting mm-hmm. side lock rifles. Right. Um, yeah, I was stationed in Pennsylvania. They have a specific flintlock season, and I did something similar. I bought a Peter Soli Plains rifle. Gorgeous, gorgeous remake of an old timey side lock rifle. Well, I didn't I didn't read the regulations well enough. It had to be a flintlock. I couldn't believe it. I was illegal even with a percussion cap rifle. Right. <laughs> so. That's one of those things. Uh, that's why Pioneer Weapons Area means so much to me, um, because it means so much to many other people. I mean, sure. there's uh, 709,000 acres roughly in the Daniel Boone National Forest mm-hmm. in Kentucky. We have 7,000 out of the entire state set aside for that one type right. of hunting. And there was a you know discussion last year about it. Um, and that's where I learned you're very passionate about it. We had a for the listeners who you know, weren't following, there was a movement in the Department of Fish and Wildlife that was brought all the way up to the Fish and Wildlife Commission for a decision to allow inline scoped muzzleloaders in the Pioneer Weapons Area. Um, I think it was also going to allow crossbows in the Pioneer Weapons Area. And uh, that's when, uh, uh, you know, I I religiously attend the Fish and Wildlife meeting since I retired uh, from the Army. I brought that to your attention, and you were on it like a hornet, man. You were, <laughs> you were serious about that pioneer weapons issue. 
Yep. Well, that's uh, that comes from the people that I've met that are so passionate about um, side lock muzzle loaders. I mean, most people call them Kentucky rifles. Sure, and they um, should. Yep. Um, one correction on that: the uh, crossbows have always been legal there. Okay. The Pioneer Weapons Area was one of the first places in the country where you could actually hunt with a crossbow. That's one of the things that also sets that place uh, separate from others. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. Yep. Um, you know, we went to that meeting, and I don't know, was that your first Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting that you attended in person? Yes, I think so. Yeah. What would you think of that? It was much more organized than I thought it was going to be. Oh, that's a compliment. Um, I would say that the people who were there representing other stakeholders, um, other or organizations, um, were very welcoming, um, open to have backcountry hunters and anglers join basically the outdoor community here in Kentucky. Um, of course, we were new. There were some suspect questions. <laughs> there some, always some, some sideways right. looks. Yeah. Which... Uh, you should always go into something with a little bit of skepticism. Uh, but I think that over the course of time, uh, since we've become a chapter, that we've uh, converted a lot of the people who um, may have had early doubts mm. and uh, that we continue to, to build support inside and outside of the department. Yeah, that, that's the second time I've seen you very fearlessly address officials from either the Fish and Wildlife Commission or the Department of Fish and Wildlife um, about public lands. The first time was at the NASP tournament, the National Archery in the Schools Program tournament, uh, state championship uh, in 2019. We had an opportunity to meet and speak with the Commissioner of Fish and Wildlife, and he happened to mention that we there was a chance that you know, we really had too much public land because we couldn't take care of it all. And, boy, you you were professional, but you stepped off pretty hard on the commissioner. Well, I mean, um, Kentucky isn't Nevada. You know, we're not Colorado. We don't have millions of acres of public land, 23 million acres in Colorado alone of federally managed public land. You know, we have 2 million between federal and state wildlife management areas. Mm -hmm. Every acre that gets taken away is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to go hunting. It's an opportunity for, for me to take someone to show them the difference between a white oak and a red oak. It's the opportunity for somebody to go out and see their first scarlet tanager, which I saw this spring. Yeah. So In the, in the Daniel Boone, too, right? Right. Yep. So one of those things where you know, never know what you're going to see. But if you put up a no trespassing sign, I know what you want. Mm -hmm. Right on. So, um, I had not, we'd not met until uh, probably, I'm going to say February of 19. Uh, we started working together to help found the, the Kentucky chapter of PHA. And, um, I've never asked you this, but I, I think it's a wonderful question for the podcast. What brought you to BHA? Why BHA for you? Um, well, I've been, you know, I've been a member of National Wild Turkey Federation because I'm a turkey hunter, um, an aspirational elk hunter. So I was a member of Rocky <laughs> Mountain Elk Foundation. <laughs> um, We're gonna fix that. 
Oh, we fixed that since those days. Oh, that's right. I've seen pictures. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank but, you for fixing or reminding me. Uh, but um, really, I would say um, it was an employment opportunity or the lack thereof. <laughs> like I said, I, will, I primarily work in automotive. Uh, 2008, 2009 was a very rough year, uh, if anybody remembers that. Uh, so got laid off in April. And of course, applying for jobs, hustling around, trying to trying to make something happen. Uh, but just as it would happen, you know, you're sitting at home, you're watching the Outdoor Channel, and a, a new show came on. It was called On Your Own Adventures hmm. with Randy Newberg. Yeah, right on. So, Uncle Randy. Yep. Um, he was the first show that uh, didn't end with telling you which outfitter to call or which ranch to book your trip with. Mm. He ended with your public land. All you need is a tag and the drive to come out here and make it happen. And over the course of, you know, the couple episodes, um, really got me inspired thinking about doing some public hunting. And then, um, of course, you know, a couple years down the road, he did an actual episode that I don't know if it was sponsored by BHA uh, but he brought a lot of awareness to it mm-hmm. and spoke highly of them, highly of the group and their leadership. Um, so they were on my radar at that point. And then uh, 2016, um, of course, that's five years after going back to work. Um, had an opportunity with one of my friends who knew someone in Colorado, and he's like, hey, I've got a buddy who we can go elk hunting with. And obviously jumped right at that chance, went out. And uh, on the fourth morning of a five-day hunt, leaned up against an aspen tree, haven't seen an elk in four days. And I think to myself, I'm definitely coming back and doing this again. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's, It's special. Within 15 minutes... I see movement. Uh-oh. Coming down the ridge. Of course, morning thermals. First time I'm dealing with thermals. Sure. But the wind's coming down the mountain at me. The elk are coming down the mountain at me. So I've got the wind in my favor. I'm not moving. They don't see me. To the point where they cross 15 foot in front of me. Oh, my Lord. So I've I've taken up reloading. Worked up this perfect load. I'm zeroed at 200 yards, and I have to look over the top of the scope to see my target. Pretty close. <laughs> yeah. So make that shot. Um, she goes down quickly. Uh, me and my buddy meet up later, do the gutless method, get her into a cooler. And on the drive back, my almost my entire focus on a 16, 18-hour drive was this is not going to be taken away from anybody. Right on, man. When right. I get back to Kentucky, I'm calling BHA headquarters. I'm emailing BHA headquarters, and I'm finding out what it takes for us to get a chapter in Kentucky. Yeah, which you didn't just see on the uh, on the podcast because you can't see us on the podcast. There's a little bit of knuckles just happened right there. You know, we don't high-five anymore. But – uh that's uh that's badass man and uh 
<laughs> it's just, to me, it is like a birthright. It is part of American exceptionalism. It is part of the pioneer spirit. It's it's part of the fabric that's woven into this country. You know, I, I became enamored with the bravery and the fiber it took for the initial frontiersmen to leave the, the colonies and start paddling the rivers that flowed west, you know, and eventually most of them ended up at the cane breaks, you know, in northern Kentucky, southern Indiana, southern Ohio, um, and started reading those stories as a kid. And it's like there has always been land that we've been able to explore as Americans that was ours. You know, and you read enough of that and you start thinking that's just, that's, you know, I mean, I hate the cliche, but that's as, that's as American as mom, apple pie, and baseball. So, yeah, over my dead body, you know, that old saying is they can have my gun when they pry it from my cold, dead hands. Well, they can have my public lands and waters when they pry it from my cold, dead hands. Um, yeah, when if you're, you're basically talking in the same language, I, I, um, I kind of, I tend to look at it and portray it as this. Public land is the physical manifestation of all men are created equal. Wow. That's profound. The mountain does not care how rich you are. That's true. It doesn't care if you climbed it yesterday. Right. It doesn't care if you're 18. Right. It doesn't care if you got COPD or diabetes or if you're a, a triathlon. It exacts the same toll on everyone. That's true. And so that's, it, there's that's nothing more egalitarian than the mountain. Well, that's, that is Teddy Roosevelt's democracy of hunting. Teddy Roosevelt's democracy of hunting says that all men are equal in the woods. doesn't matter if you're rich, or poor, or, you know, whatever. If you're a hunter, the challenge is the same across the board. And that's why de- there's such a thing as democracy in hunting. So uh, this is a mentoring podcast. And so uh, last year... Um, you know, the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife in Kentucky really does some exceptional um, regimented mentoring-type events. And they call their hunting events Field to Fork, and they call their fishing events Hook to Cook. And they had a significant number of participants in the deer hunting Field to Fork last year. And when it came time to do the public mentored hunt, um, they didn't have enough mentors. So, of course, you know, I have friends all all across um, the conservation community here in Kentucky. And, and a very good friend of mine, Roger LaPointe, called me and said, hey, we're short a couple mentors. I said, you know, let me let me call Stefan and see if anybody else in, in Kentucky BHA wants to participate. And it was a public land deer hunt at uh, Taylorsville WMA, and I called you, and we filled the the two voids that they had. They had two vacancies, and um, the young ladies that work um, there in the uh, education branch for the department uh, partnered us up with uh, a mentee each, and uh, we met them that day on the uh, on the archery range there to sight in the department's crossbows for these brand-new hunters so they'd have a crossbow to use. So... Tell me about the guy that that department gave you. Well, um, my mentee is Tim. Um, He's mid-30s, married, uh, with two children. Um, 
had lived all over due to military assignments. His wife is an active military, and he is a spouse of a military. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we love our military people. Sure. And, uh, but he had just uh, really started being interested in, you know, where's your food coming from, hunting as a way of uh, getting access to, to meat, and also uh, just the adventure portion of it. And uh, so, super nice guy. And that was one of those things that I went into that hunt with a different attitude. I had uh, volunteered on a previous hunt with the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And, um, of course, um, raised my hand as a first-time mentor. I failed in that experiment, not because we didn't harvest the deer. I failed because I didn't get the gentleman's phone number, and I didn't follow up. There you go. So uh, hunting and fishing are not activities that you take to in one day. There's a um, big hurdle of information to overcome, especially if you're coming into it as an adult. Um, A lot of people start in their childhood with people who are going to be in their lives on a daily basis or on a regular basis. Uh, So you're hunting with your dad when you're 12, when you're 13, and when you're 17, you get time to absorb that information. Um, the expectations you're going to take somebody out one day and they're going to be ready to, you know, invest the time, energy, and uh, resources that it takes to become a fully dedicated hunter is probably unrealistic. So you've stayed in contact with your guy. Oh, yeah. We actually, uh, today's Tuesday, and we actually went out hunting Sunday morning. <laughs> so so we, <laughs> spring squirrels in. Yes, we heard them. <laughs> Well, it, we, we've had a very significant amount of rain, and the green-up in Kentucky this year happened a little early, and it is thick already. Hard yeah. to see a squirrel in, this, in these treetops now. Apparently, it is not hard to see two people on the ground, though. Ah, because squ- <laughs> there, was, there was more barking <laughs> in the woods than there is at the local humane mm. society. <laughs> You're, the squirrels saw you first, huh? But we did hear a really clear turkey gobble within 100 yards we were That's right so in one and oh man just he lit up and i'm like it's june there was I, we have had a lot i've had a lot of conversations about this um with, with the biologists and with some other folks we had a, a couple of very weird very short cold snaps this spring where we had some overnight frost and it was gone in in a day but the prevailing thought there was is that uh, those who those hens that nested early may have lost that nest due to the you know the, the freezing of the eggs and and whatnot. I don't know that to be true, but it, there is no doubt that we have had late turkey breeding, and my only hope is that those poults that come from that late breeding are big enough and strong enough to get through the winter this year because they're starting about what appears to be about six weeks late. Right. Um, so you took them squirrel hunting this weekend. Yep. So we have gone um, – our initial, of course, look, like you were discussing, was a uh, whitetail deer hunt with crossbows. Um, Sponsored by the department. Yep. So we had crossbows. They gave us – they gave the uh, mentees – 
camouflage clothing, mm-hmm. orange vest, orange hats. Although we were not hunting with firearms, uh, we were hunting during the weekend that is the early muzzleloader season in Kentucky, so we want to be in compliance and be safe. Um, went out on Saturday morning to a location that I picked just because it was easy to walk to, get in, set up a ground blind, get to know one another um, with a plan of Saturday evening being the time that we actually take the afternoon hiking in the daytime, show him how to identify trails, rubs, droppings on the ground. Tracks, all that. Try to put together a, a puzzle and then put a plan together for the evening hunt. Man, that's what I love about public land. It's hunting is back to the woodsmanship I learned when I was a kid. You know, there there wasn't enough deer, so there damn sure wasn't any baiting. Um, and I remember taking a master sergeant when I was a cadet in college in ROTC. Uh, the master sergeant, who was part of the cadre in my ROTC department, had a tag to take his one son. And back then, growing up where I lived, a doe tag was a draw tag. They had a lottery to kill a doe. Well, his older son drew a doe tag. And I remember him coming to me. I was probably a junior or senior in the ROTC department. He knew I was a hunter. And he said, hey, look, I got to take my one son over here. Can you please take my other son over here? And that was my first time ever mentoring anybody. And um, son came up on, uh, and back then it was nothing but shotgun slugs, no high-power rifles. And uh, son came up, it sounded like, and I can say this from experience, it sounded like a firefight. <laughs> and uh, I'm not kidding you. I watched three does run down the opposite hillside across the creek bottom in front of us. And it wasn't where he could take the, I made a ground blind for us in the dark. I just piled up some brush, and we sat against a tree, almost like you was turkey hunting. And uh, he couldn't quite poke his gun, his shotgun barrel out and touch her. But had you dove, you probably could have touched her before she jumped and ran away. I mean, she was not yards. She was feet. And I didn't have to tell that kid anything. When she stopped and looked around left and right, he waited till the doe behind her cleared, and I looked over. I didn't even have to whisper to him. I saw him take the safe off, and he stovepiped her. And it was like 20 minutes after sunup. I couldn't believe it. And uh, it was little Brad Watts, and uh, I'll never forget it. We, you know, between the two of us, we drug that deer back to my little piece of crap Ford Bronco and and uh, drove it to his daddy's house. That was my first ever mentoring experience, and and it's as crystal clear in my mind today as the day that I did it. Um, so do you guys have plans to uh, – well, wait a minute. Let me back up. How would y'all do? Well, actually, we we found a power line, which, as we know, you're looking at the forest. you got a power line cut through. There's going to be a lot of browse in there, sure. waist high and below – uh, so we hiked up right at the edge of a power line cut, and I uh, kept pointing, okay, here's a trail. Here's what a trail looks like. See how it goes into the cedars. And then we started following the trail. I was like, what we're looking for is a place where multiple trails come together. Right on. So we found that, and I was like, now what we need to do is confirm that they're coming through here recently. If we can find some fresh droppings or anything, he looks down and goes, like those? <laughs> <laughs> I said we're in the right spot. Yeah, right on. So we looked around, found a couple trees. Um, went and set our little, you know, camp chairs behind the behind them, and uh, sat there and was being quiet. 
and that evening we end up seeing six deer. Nice. Five does and a spike buck. Mm-mm-mm. And uh, unfortunately, we weren't sitting shoulder to shoulder. I had told him uh, with a rangefinder, it's like anything that comes in this area, uh, you probably want to use the middle dot of your three dots on your scope. Um, the buck came in, started angling down the hill, but coming toward us mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. Um, since we weren't really close to one another, I didn't have the opportunity to say, use the top dot. Um, made a noise. The deer stopped. Perfect broadside shot. He held perfectly on it. Middle dot. Right oh, over its right over it's, its back. Too high. Yeah, it was. Oh no. Right no. over its back. We see the deer run off. Um, of course, you know we look for any sign of a hit, uh, but didn't find any. Uh, but the look on his face when he turned around after that shot and the deer ran off was just pure adrenaline. Yeah, right. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, I've jumped out of a plane and it wasn't exciting as that. Yeah, right on. Great. I was like, that's it. That's that's the sensation you're looking for right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Yeah, on your worst day, you have a wonderful, like, peaceful trip in the woods. Like you said earlier, you're looking for birds like that scarlet tanager you saw. On your best day, you're bringing home the groceries to your family. Right. And that's thing we did a couple late season um, muzzleloader hunts. Uh, we did a l- February uh, squirrel, which is very, very difficult. Mm. And then um, did not do a turkey hunt in the spring uh, just because of when you're mentoring somebody, turkey hunting, having to be quiet, sitting at a tree mm. uh, due to the pandemic that's going on. Yeah, I was going to say COVID had an impact as well. Um Wanted to be safe for him and for my family, uh, not sitting shoulder to shoulder and uh, or in a blind um, during turkey season. So we we skipped that and we went on to spring squirrel. And uh, like I said, we didn't have any luck this past weekend, but uh, got plans for getting together and doing some doing some rifle shooting, some muzzleloader shooting, uh, getting them exposed to those um, with a goal of putting down some deer in the fall he's uh he bought a shotgun so he's got his own uh field and rifled slug barrel for turkey hunting okay right on and then he also bought himself a uh crossbow oh okay for archery hunting and crossbow season and uh so yeah he's seems to be switched on and and tuned in and excited about it so i'm i'm excited to be along for the ride and, you know i never have uh all i've ever been is that person who was learning this is my first experience with some, with teaching someone i mm-hmm. i'm definitely not the most experienced hunter right i would say that sunday was the first time for tim going out into the woods in the spring squirrel hunting i can also safely say it was my first time spring squirrel hunting mm. um so actually he's inspiring me to go out and learn more as well yeah. He has questions that I don't have the answer to. I have to go look them up. I have to go find them. I have to find people like you to help answer them. Yeah. So it's making me a better, more tuned-in hunter just because I have to answer the questions that I haven't asked. That's that's an interesting perspective, man. Um, I was going to ask this, but I think you just answered it. So you're enjoying your your time as a mentor. 
Yeah, actually, um, I'd like to throw out a big shout-out to our uh, BHA brothers and sisters up in Pennsylvania. They started a program, um, I know it was around last year. I don't know if it was around before that. It was called Take Two. Hmm. Uh, they were saying even if you put the time, effort into uh, getting someone out multiple times to try to be hunting, uh, that probably only 50% of that it's going to take. So if you're taking two hunters, at least one of them is going to become a lifelong hunter. That's a great idea. So that's something that we're wanting to roll out this year uh, is encourage all of our members in Kentucky uh, to take two people who have never been hunting before, um, whether they're a child, a co-worker, someone the department um, hooks you up with, or if you're a listener and you're wanting to start hunting, reach out. Kentucky at backcountryhunters.org. That's our email address for the chapter. Um, we've got directors and members all across the state. Um, it's nothing formal at this point. We're hoping to do something like Idaho does with that BHA chapter next year. Uh, but if you're interested in hunting and you're in Kentucky, reach out to us. And myself, Mike, or one of the hundreds of our members, um, we'll find somebody that's excited to take you out and uh, teach you to fish, teach you to camp, teach you to hunt. Exactly. Whatever you want to do in the outdoors, you know, because we've got to grow that constituency, man. we got to grow. We have not enough brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews in the outdoors right now. It's absolutely a fact. I have had... Um, I have had more fun in the outdoors in the last two years since I've, st- and so that's why I started this podcast, The Outdoor Mentor. I've had more fun mentoring people. Um, I'm going to tell you when Audrey Kapuzak, 15 year old girl I took deer hunting last year, killed her first buck. And I shoot archery tournaments with her dad, and her dad's tried to get her a buck. Um, and they're basically family at this point. When she shot her first buck, and it was a mature eight-pointer, I came out of my skin, Stefan. I was dancing <laughs> and screaming and hooping and hollering. You thought I killed the world record whitetail. It's, I'm telling you, there's nothing better than seeing your mentee get it done. It just, it's, it's beyond exciting. I mean, it, it really does something for your soul. Um, and, and I don't, I don't want to try to, tell you what the secret sauce is there if you're listening but i'm telling you if you try it and you don't enjoy it there is something wrong with you um so yeah we've both stayed engaged with our mentees Uh, my mentee joel's been on this podcast and he and i were on the phone almost every day he went turkey hunting when he got home you know this is what happened what did i do wrong and and we went turkey scouting earlier uh, in the in the year, and, and I've told him, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily want my help, so the training wheels are off um, this fall for deer season. But I've told him if he runs into the into the conundrum of he's having trouble, I'm going to make sure he kills a deer because the one thing, the step that we both didn't get to do, you with Tim and me with Joel, is the field dressing, the butchering. Now, they teach that at – the department's field of fork they teach it but it's an instructor showing people how to do it until they actually get get blood and and flesh underneath their fingernails and do it once themselves you know i really don't feel like the training wheels are off 
Um, and that's what happened with me last year, mentoring a, a good friend of mine, Kevin, who's also been on this podcast with turkey hunting. He'd killed one, but, you know, he confessed that he just wasn't sure that he cut it up right and all this other stuff. And, and it's after that animal's on the ground, whether it's a turkey or a deer or whatever, even, I mean, even doves or squirrels, knowing how to care for the animal so that you don't waste any meat, knowing how to skin it, knowing how to, you know, for the big game, because I don't drag them out off public land because I walk so deep in public land. I quarter them up and carry them out like, like I'm hunting out west. But that's the step I've yet to get to with my guy, and it sounds like you've got that step. So we're, we're basically same place with our with the ones the department gave us. Um, and I'd like to echo what you just said. If anybody out there listening to this podcast wants to learn how to hunt, fish, camp, scout, hike, or you let's say you're an experienced person and you're going out west for the first time and you want somebody to go through your gear list with you before you go out there, if there's anything you need help with in the outdoors, we've got somebody in the Kentucky chapter that can help you. It doesn't need to be me. It doesn't need to be Stefan. Uh, but we will find somebody. And you can reach out to us at Kentucky at backcountryhunters.org. Um, so we're both knee-deep. We're both 100% committed to mentoring. Um, I am... Uh, Really excited to take one of my former officers, uh, elk hunting. Uh, he and I were shooting his new bow this week, and I'm going to do my normal public land elk and bear. Um, Colorado has lowered, Colorado has figured out, and it came from the Yellowstone study, that it's not wolves that are the top predator of elk casts, it's black bears. And um, they have lowered their black bear. Uh, I killed my last black bear in Colorado in 2008 or 17 17 or 18 and um no it was 17 and since then to encourage bear hunting in in, uh, colorado they've dropped their over-the-counter it used to be that you had to be online the instant those things went for sale and you had to push send or you weren't going to get one now you can basically just buy them over the counter and they've gone down from about 370 dollars to like a hundred and 105 it's like 104 dollars and 50 cents with the search and rescue fee and the habitat stamp and all that crap and bears are good to eat man um we eat the we eat the snot out of black bears at our house so um i'm excited to take uh, i've took a bunch of people out west um i'm taking him uh it's gonna be a good time and uh so on the mentoring front we're knee deep and hopefully somebody will contact us and, and we can put you in touch with uh uh, one of our members and, and get you out in the field. And, and honestly, if it's just camping, don't worry about it. We'll take you. Um, so let's talk about some BHA stuff. Okay. Um, you know, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a different kind of organization. And I think people across the country are a little confused um, about, especially people, um, sportsmen and women, east of the Mississippi are a little confused for sure about what BHA really does. BHA was started as a grassroots organization where the chapters actually drive the train. Um, If you go back all the way to the origin story of BHA, it started with a few guys in a bar. Now they'll tell you that the chapter, the, the organization was founded over a campfire one night 
with all the stakeholders uh, out having a cold beverage over a campfire. Um, and that's just the coolest origin story on the planet for a conservation organization. But the idea was written on a cocktail napkin in a bar after a conservation conference. And there was guys who were at this big conference, and they said to themselves, what we don't have is a grassroots organization that's dedicated to the land and the water and and not a species. You know, we have plenty of organizations dedicated, you know, to trout, to elk, to pheasants, to quail, to, you know, sheep. Um, and, you know, that being part of the origin story. So the other thing that BHA does different than than any outfit other than probably the NRA is we engage at the state and local level um, on policy and law. We don't specifically hold a fundraiser for, you know, the Elk Foundation or the Pheasants Forever or the Quail Forever or Quail Unlimited. I think it's now Pheasants Unlimited, but we don't do that. What we do is we put in elbow grease and we work really hard on public lands and waters uh, because that's really the fundamental thread that underpins all the conservation organizations without land and without water and without access you got nothing and so um, bha works really hard nationwide and engages nationwide from washington dc through every state legislature in the country uh, to the local level on making sure that the rules the regulations and the law that supports our hunting fishing trapping and boating heritage is secure um and i'm pretty passionate about that and i know you are um we've had quite a few discussions on our our state monthly conference call about how we're going to engage what we're going to support and the the efforts of other conservation organizations and how we can double down and help them um, so if you're wondering what BHA does, the easiest way uh, to acquaint yourself with our organization is to go to www.backcountryhunters.org and just peruse that website. It's a beautiful, professional website. It's got the About Us tab there with the mission and the goals and the vision. It's got the Take Action tab and the blog and, and everything you'd ever need to know. But I can tell you right here in Kentucky, we are 100% engaged um, with the Fish and Wildlife Commission and our legislature to secure, um, you know, our hunting heritage, our outdoors heritage, I should say, more correctly, uh, here in the Commonwealth. So having said all that, um, what do you think the biggest issue is right now, Stefan, at the national level? Um, undoubtedly, at the national level, uh, it has to be the Great American Outdoors Act. Um in the Senate, it's Senate Bill 3422. Um, last night, it just uh, passed cloture, which means that it's going to be taken to the Senate floor for a vote. Uh, passed 81 to 17, which is a great bipartisan. In, uh, in today's federal legislature, that is a landslide. Right. So that's one of those where if you're getting 81%, you got 100 senators, you got 81 votes, you got 81% of the vote uh, behind something. Uh, I challenge you to find something else in America that you can find 81% of the people behind. <laughs> um, yep. Of course, this economy has been uh, drastically impacted by the pandemic, and also our society's been impacted by it. I think a lot of people are realizing how much they appreciate their uh, county park and their city pool and their hiking trail 
in their national forest. Uh, especially when they can't use the city pool this year and they miss it. Right. And that city pool was most likely funded by the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Amen, brother. Which is going, it has been permanently reauthorized, but right now it's subject to yearly approval for funding. Yeah, the appropriations annually have to refund it every single year. Yep, but not if the Great American Outdoors Act passes. If it passes, it will be fully funded at the $900 million mark that it was originally set up at 55 years ago. So for the listeners out there, the Land and Water Conservation Fund um, doesn't actually take money. That $900 million does not come out of your taxes, your federal tax dollars. That money comes from royalties off of offshore oil and gas wells. So basically, decades ago, our our federal legislature said, okay, Offshore oil and gas can be safe, but oftentimes it's a pollutant. And so how can we offset the the polluting nature of offshore oil and gas? Well, we can take the royalties from it, and we can plug it into a system and a bill, the Land and Water Conservation Fund bill, that pays every state in the union back to have public access venues, whether that's public land or, like Stefan said, a pool. It could be anything. Right, stuff. Yep, baseball parks, baseball, soccer fields. Soccer, yep. Yep, anything. And that is the biggest economic driver um, for um, our outdoor recreation in the country. I mean, it is it is a funding uh, mechanism that really honestly uh, keeps the states to a point where they can do the things that we expect them to do and that we've come to love. Okay, so we've established that the Land and Water Conservation Fund has been seminal and foundational in not just the maintenance, but the establishment of, you know, public resources all over the country, not just hunting areas, you know, your local swimming pool or ballpark. What could be more important than getting that fully funded permanently? I mean, I can't think of anything. Nothing. That's why it's our number one national priority. Yeah, that's our number one national priority. And so, honestly, if you – and this is what makes BHA different. We're not necessarily talking to you about, like, you know, restoration of uh, bighorn sheep in a specific area in Idaho. You know, that's for the Sheep Foundation to do. We're talking about Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is germane to every single American. There's got to be within a 15-minute or maybe an hour – drive of where you live some public land public pool public park that land and water conservation fund helped to make happen and so if you're out there and you want to learn more about it the easiest thing on the planet to do is just google land and water conservation fund you'll get the wikipedia page when you do that if after you read that you go oh my lord this needs to get passed while it's being debated, and there's a companion bill in the Senate and the House right now, okay, that is, you know, something that almost always happens when important legislation is going through. Uh, they don't wait for the normal process of it get past the Senate and then go through the House or get past the House and go through the Senate. You'll see a companion bill in both houses of our federal legislature. Yep. 
Actually, the Senate bill is Senate Bill S-3422. And the companion bill in the House is H.R. House Resolution 7092. Thank you, sir. And if after you do a little research on your own, if you agree with us that it is the most important national issue, um, we would invite you to once again go to www.backcountryhunters.org and click the Take Action tab. If you click that tab, you'll immediately see a way for you to contact your legislators on a host of issues. But the one for the Great American Outdoors Act will be right there um, near the top. And uh, that's something you can absolutely do. It is painless. It is quick. And for those people that think that they're powerless and that their voice doesn't matter, and in this day and age no one listens, I'm going to tell you you couldn't be more wrong. Your voice still matters. Legislators understand that they must be reelected. And the ones that are in an election year, which this year we're in one, um, they're going to listen. So the easiest way on the planet to have a positive effect and do your civic duty, as we were all taught in our middle school or junior high school civics class, is to be involved in a democracy, is to take action. The easiest way is at www.backcountryhunters.org. Take action. Um, pivoting to state level. Um, you know, this is where we really have made some money because we did, what, eight public lands and waters work days last year before COVID stopped us? Yep, eight, eight work days in our first eight months. Um that doesn't include our social events, you know, pot nights or anything like that. This or, just or mentoring spe- events. Or mentoring events. This is just specifically building fish structures, building wood duck boxes, installing wood duck boxes. Cleaning up and refurbishing art, public archery ranges. Um, we backpacked 450 trout into some backwater or backwoods, backcountry, at, at the Red fly River, fishing. Red River Gorge, yeah. Yep. So um, a lot of good things that we were doing. Right. Uh, we've had to hit pause. We didn't hit stop. Right. Um, good thing <laughs> is, is uh, hopefully by the end of this, uh, you give me an opportunity to announce a couple events that are going to be upcoming. We're going to do it. From now through the end of the year. I appreciate that. Yep. Um, but I would say um, our biggest issue at the state level right now as a new chapter um, is bringing awareness to not only our organization, uh, but trying to understand and reverse uh, the negative view of public lands in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, one of the first conversations I had with a group of people, uh, someone told me, and the irony was not lost on me, that in these two sentences they said, no one hunts public land because there's too many people there. <laughs> I said, one of those statements can't be true. Right. <laughs> Either no one is hunting them, or there's too many people. <laughs> it can't be both. Right. Um, I love it. They did not respond to my inquiry. <laughs> I don't think they uh, accepted that, the, that that those two statements were in right. opposition to one another. Sure. The premise of their statement was, was juxtaposition. Yeah. Right. Um, but we're working on making uh, more people aware. Uh, before the pandemic hit, we were adding about a – on average, about one person per day to our um, membership roles. 
Um, we were also adding people to our social media accounts who were following us and, and uh, taking notice to the work that we were doing. Um, we're looking forward to uh, getting that momentum rolling again and uh, encouraging more and more people to start hunting, fishing, camping, appreciating the land that we have here in Kentucky. and That belongs that, to them. And actually across this country. Yeah. It, if you're listening right now and you, you're like, well, I just have, you know, my house or my apartment or whatever, and I don't have these lands to recreate on, you're, you're dead wrong. Okay. All the public land in this country belongs to all of us. That's why it's part of American exceptionalism. We don't have royalty that says you can't go on land like they do in Europe. Um, you know, we don't have huge swaths of territory that says no trespassing yeah there's some ranches out west yeah there's farms here in the east but generally speaking you can very easily in kentucky just go to fw.ky.gov and click places to hunt or places to fish you'll see it on there and it will talk to you about all of the lakes and streams and rivers that are public access for you to, to fish on it'll talk to you about all the wildlife management areas and hunting access areas that are available for you to hunt and hike. Um, and basically to talk to you about all the seasons. I mean, like bullfrog season's in right now. And I'm here to tell you, that's something that's on my list here very shortly. Um, but I agree with you. Um, getting folks to realize that hunting on public land is not dangerous. It's not crowded. Um, are there crowded WMAs? Absolutely. If you live in Lexington and you just go to Veterans wma well it's going to be crowded if you live in louisville and you just go to taylorsville wma it's going to be crowded there are a cluster of wmas uh, in north central kentucky that are almost always empty um you know our public lands were significantly crowded this spring because people could social distance and spend time in the woods and so turkey season was the crowdest uh, you know, the, the most people I've ever seen on public lands this year during turkey season. But even so, I never felt in any way, shape, or form in danger. I mean, I always carry an orange vest with me when I'm hunting public lands, even during turkey season. And when someone gets within visual range of me and I think they're going to encroach on my decoys or something, I usually stand up, hold my orange vest in the air, and kind of wave it a little bit. Now, is that going to scare off a turkey if they're close? Yes, but it keeps him from shooting me and me from shooting him. So... I agree with you. Um, you know what? You and I had a really cool turkey hunt this spring. You invited me into your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's backyard, really, because it was Daniel Boone National Forest. But it was it was one of your spots. And for those of you who have hunted and have fished, uh, you know, you, you keep your, your best catfish hole kind of a secret. And... Uh, Stefan invited me to one of his favorite turkey spots in Daniel Boone National Forest. And uh, we had a, a camp out. And the first day, we were into gobbling birds. And um, we got back to camp, and we started collecting firewood. I'll let you take it from there. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the uh, the fairest way to um, kind of frame it was it was, it was a public land campfire. We were uh, collecting, collecting our wood, uh, 
eating our dinner, kind of getting ready for the evening to kind of settle down. Sun was setting. Um, we hear the crunch of tires on the gravel road. And, you know, we're we're turkey bums. We're 15 foot off the road, <laughs> if that. Got our well, tent, those got our those roads are on the ridges in that in those mountains. <laughs> if you get too far off, you ain't got a flat spot to camp. Well, that's the thing. If I'd went five more feet, I would have, I would have been going uh, vertical. Yeah, down a hillside for sure. Uh, so, uh, car pulls up and stops. Gentleman steps out from the passenger side and goes, "Hey guys, you turkey hunting?" And we're sure, yeah. And I start a conversation with him. Talked to him for about five or ten minutes. Turns out he's a, a local from about fifteen miles away. Uh, owns his own small piece of property, but. Uh, he's at this place because he considers it better turkey hunting than what he has access to on private land. And honestly, in 15 years of turkey hunting, the best turkey hunting I've found has been on public land as well. Um, we talked to him about uh, BHA. Of course, I'm I'm ABC. I'm always be closing. I'm always trying to get new members, trying to get people signed up, yeah, trying to get people to uh, – to, to understand what we're about. You're an evangelist for public lands, man. He he wasn't by the campfire for 15 minutes before you're like, so, man, <laughs> how do you feel about public lands? I was like, oh, Stefan's going to sell them right here, man. <laughs> so I uh, talked to him for about 10 minutes, and uh, he was camping out with his family further down the, the road from us. Uh, we'd seen their camp set up earlier in the day, and we are like, sure, you know, come back and visit with us later this evening. And uh, it got dark, and up rolls a four-wheel drive truck, and all four doors open, <laughs> and five people roll out. Everybody, um, three generations of a family. We had uh, Grandpa, three sons, and one of the sons, sons. So we had Grandpa, son, grandson. Um Showing us pictures of deer they've taken off this property, um, explaining to us uh, different locations that we've been hunting that have been good in the past or not so good in the past. Um, just a really good, fun conversation. Everything from uh, turkey hunting to public land. Uh, they had interest in possibly going to Colorado and going elk hunting. Um, I explained my philosophy of Elk hunting in the West requires two things, um, most likely uh, the deer rifle you already own and the ability to pump gas into your truck. <laughs> I love it when you give people that speech, man. People are like, people are like, oh, man, I'd love to be able to go on an elk hunt. And you always say, dude, all you got to do is learn how to pump gas. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's over-the-counter tags, and uh, you go down to I-64, you turn west, and – you get off somewhere once you get past Denver. <laughs> yeah, right on. It is almost that simple. Yeah. Yep. Um, then, of course, uh, conversations around campfires always uh, tra traveled uh, down many, many rabbit holes. And this one. Um, so we passed a little, we passed, a, you know, I could tell that this conversation was going in a in an interesting direction. Um Two of them were open carry firearms, you know, and, and we're both super comfortable with that. But, you know, it was like, all right, these are these are kind of our people. This is kind of our tribe. But, you know, where are they going with some of this conversation? And and I, that's when I decided, look, we're only going to be here two nights. I'm not going to finish this entire bottle of whiskey. So I poured myself a little whiskey over ice. I made sure you had a drink. 
And then I just handed the rest of that bottle out to the to the family. There's five or six of them. And I got it back empty eventually. But <laughs> <laughs> about ten minutes later, one of them points straight up in the sky and looks to me deadpan serious and says, if you could fly and left right now, and he's pointing at, at the stars, you would never have to stop. You could just keep on going and going and going. And I thought, oh, Lord, now here it comes. And then the next one said, man, what do you think about aliens? And I'm like, holy smokes. You jumped in on the aliens thing. And then one of them asked you about, you. he asked me about aliens and you answered it. And then someone asked you about Bigfoot. And, <laughs> and I did the old story of, hey, man, back when the Florida Panther was endangered, we were still hitting them with cars. So we would have hit a Bigfoot with a truck by now, you know. But we had one of the oldest human interactions on the planet is a group of hunters by fire had another group of hunters wander by, see the fire, come join them, and tell stories. It did get a little weird. Well, we'll have to think, uh, what was it, James B. Beam for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> or at least one of his uh, multi-generational um One of his descendants. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Someone someone in the Booker No line. Yeah, <laughs> took that off the train tracks and sure. and into the, and into the stratosphere <laughs> of aliens and Bigfoot, man. And I, I uh, we were having a perfectly good turkey conversation when someone started talking about flying, you know, leaving Earth's gravity and then aliens and Bigfoot. That was pretty damn funny. But uh, well, here's how great that story was. It was enough to make you threaten me the next night. <laughs> If I see you collecting firewood, you and I are going to fight. I can't handle another night like last night. Well, they stayed too late, and we drank too much, and both of us were dragging ourselves out of bed pre-dawn to turkey hunt the second morning, which was actually the better morning for me. I found I, I, I didn't kill a bird, but I... Dropped about six pins on some of the best turkey sign I'd ever seen down one of those finger ridges. So, I mean, I have a place to go back to now. Thank you, by the way, for taking me to camp. And, and it was it, it was a great turkey memory for me, man, because not often have I gone turkey hunting where we stayed and camped out and, and, and dealt with, you know, cool-ass locals that wanted to talk about Bigfoot. But So you've doubled down on mentoring. I've doubled down on mentoring. And one of the places that we often connect with people that want to be mentored is our public lands work days, and our public waters work days, and our pint nights. You want to tell the listeners um, about some of the upcoming events we've got going on this summer now that we're allowed to gather legally and get back to doing what we do best, which is volunteer work on the public lands that belong to everybody. Stefan, you want to talk about what we got coming up? Okay. Yep. Actually, we had a um, board meeting. Our monthly board meeting was last night, and we approved um, a number of uh, events. So, uh, first one coming up is going to be on July the 11th at Peabody Wildlife Management Area. We're going to have a 30 cubic yard uh, dumpster will be set there for us. Uh, we're going to gather. Um, the location and time 
yet to be determined, but most likely a 9, 10 o'clock start time, uh, working through the middle of the day collecting trash across the, the wildlife management area uh, with a goal of filling up that dumpster. Um, and at the end of it, um, everyone gathering around their tailgates at a, an appropriate distance and uh, telling stories, catching up, and uh, hopefully signing up some new members. We're going to have... Make new friends. Make new friends. We're going to have all of our merchandise there, so there's going to be shirts, hats. Um, memberships can be signed up for. Lifetime memberships can be signed up for. Um, yeah, you know, I went to a meeting. I was blessed to be asked to go to a meeting with some stakeholders at the at the Peabody WMA headquarters in February. And there was a lot of frustration voiced at that meeting, and it was directed at um, – not just the the district commissioner, which is not his fault, but since he's the volunteer district commissioner for Fish and Wildlife Commission, it is his district. So the, they were placing the angst at the right, at the feet of the right man. And um, the second district commissioner is a good man. He's a strong man. He's a young man, which we need more of in conservation. And he, you know, he is doing something about it. But one of the things that I did leaving that meeting was I challenged those guys to not just complain, but to do something about it. And one of them contacted me and said, hey, man, here's some pictures of all this trash that people leave. Here's a picture of the dumping that they're doing. And I said, well, do you want to do something about it? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, let me ask my board if they do too. So our board of directors wanted to do something about it. We got uh, Kentucky Anna Safari Club to donate uh, uh, enough money to buy the dumpster uh, or to rent it, I should say. And um and now we're going to do something about it. And that's what BHA does. If you're out there and you think that you don't matter, you don't make a difference, you're wrong. We do every chance we get. So uh, we have a similar event coming up in August, right? Another cleanup. Yep. Well, it's actually not a um, BHA-led event. Uh, we're just going to lend our our support in any way that we can for the Ohio River Sweep. Um, hundreds of miles of wonderful access along our northern border of the state. Um, giant blue catfish. You know, many of our cities receive our water from there. Uh, we pump it out of the river. We filter it. We use it. We clean it. We put it back in the river. <laughs> so the health of that river is a direct um, result of human activity. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up tires. We're going to pick up trash. We're going to do whatever we can uh, to support this ongoing long-term project. And um, we're hoping to engage our Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. And the uh, hopefully by the time that happens, our new chapter in West Virginia. West Virginia, Mountain, go Mountaineers. Is going to have a chapter in place, and we'll be able to coordinate with them. Um, so there will be locations all along the river. Uh, that you can volunteer. You don't have to drive specifically to Cincinnati or any other location, That's Louisville, right. up and down the river. You can find the closest location to you, show up in your public landowner T-shirt, um, make connections, and be a good representative for the public landowners that are BHA members. Awesome. Yeah, and that uh, specifically, that is, it's called the Ohio River Sweep. And it's sponsored every year by the Ohio River Valley Water Sanitation Commission. So if you just Google Ohio River Sweep 
and uh, start drilling down into that and look into the Ohio River Valley Water Sanitation Commission. It's normally done earlier in the year, but due to COVID, they pushed it back to August 15th, which fits perfectly for us because we didn't have an August event yet. So we're going to partner up with them. You came up with a really, really cool event for September. Let's talk about that real quick. Okay. Um, well, September is uh, always Public Lands Month in America. Amen. So we have our uh, month-long celebration of public lands, but uh, the last Saturday in the month is always Public Lands Day. So this year that's going to be the 26th. Uh, the current plan is that we are going to be hosting a campout at the Twin Knobs uh, Campground close to Cave Run Lake. It's 15 minutes off of Interstate 64, very easy to find, uh, developed campsites. You can reserve those on uh, recreation.gov, and uh, we're hoping to put out a lot more information on that in the coming coming weeks and months, but we're going to be um, fishing at night on the lake. We're going to have opportunity to go squirrel hunting in the morning, uh, possibly a cleanup day in the afternoon. Um, and then we're going to have a social event in the evening where everyone can just come around, tell hunting stories. Um, Everyone's welcome. Yeah, well, members, non-members, uh, come by, see what we're all about. Uh, mm -hmm. Sign up for a membership, buy you a shirt, buy you a hat. And, um, of course, it's not in stone yet, but hopefully hopefully we'll have uh, some uh Things to give away is door prizes. Oh, yeah, we're working on that. That's going to be um, – that's the 25th, 26th, 27th of September weekend. That's around Public Lands Day, which is the 26th. And uh, I'm calling it BHA Squirrel Camp. You call it whatever you like. It's a mini Kentucky rendezvous. Um, but we're going to get as many of our chapter leaders and our district commissioners as we can to be there for the camp out that weekend. And uh, we'd love – to see our members out there um so uh, that basically takes us through the next 90 days and uh at that point we're um we're about done brother uh, well we do have the october uh, the date has not been confirmed but october is oh we go ahead and talk about october go for it yep um the date is not firm yet but it should be sometime in the middle of the month is the uh n next stocking of trout backpack carrying trout into the Red River Gorge. Um, I haven't been informed of what creek we're going to be stocking at this point, uh, but put that one on your calendar. It is definitely one of the highlights of the year. Um, you will go down the trail with trout in your bag, and you will come out with your rear end in your hands. Um, <laughs> it's a steep climb. It's, it's the only forested elevator shaft I've ever been in. Yeah, and so if you've ever been to the to the pet store and got a bag with goldfish in it or something like that, so imagine that about the size of a five-gallon bucket. And so a gallon of water weighs eight pounds per gallon, and I think they put about, I don't know, 15 or 20 trout in each bag, and then they, they pump it full of air using an air compressor, and they tie a knot in it. Or they actually they clamped it with the same clamps that or the rubber bands they put on um, 
male cattle to steer them, if you understand what I'm talking about there. But anyway, the bags are 100% sealed, watertight, big, heavy plastic bags, and you put them in a backpack and uh, hike them all the way to the bottom of the gorge and stock the uh, the creeks that are in the bottom of the gorge, depending on which one they want to do. We did Chimney Rock last year was the link-up point, um, and we're going to do that again this October. Now, if you want to follow us, uh, and figure out the details of, of these events and you want to participate, everyone is welcome. All right? We are a big tent organization. You do not have to be a BHA member. In fact, two Trout Unlimited guys showed up. We didn't know they were going to show up. We broadcast this event, and a couple Trout Unlimited guys showed up to the to the backpack stocking event. So these are family-friendly events. Bring your kids if you want to, as long as they're physically able to keep up. you got to just make sure that you're paying attention to that. Um, the July 11th event is going to be hot. We're going to be cleaning up trash. It's going to be ticky. It's going to be snaky. But, uh, but you know, if you want to show up, please, please show up. Um, we also have events in November and December with dates um, that are tentative. Uh, right now in November, uh, we're looking to do uh, another support mission for the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. Last year we did it. Uh, we had members volunteer to give up their opening day of deer rifle season to help the department collect uh, chronic wasting disease samples from harvested deer. Uh, and we are going to do that again this year. In fact, uh, we have a husband and wife duo, um, Pete and Michelle Ralston, who Pete's our ninth district um uh, director and his lovely wife Michelle have volunteered to head up the uh, CWD collection event for us this year. Um, so on November 14th, opening day of rifle season, we will have a team um, probably in the 9th district, which is southeast Kentucky, doing a CWD collection and sampling. Uh, and then finally, the last thing we do of the year is um, you know, it's it's the brainchild, and it's hosted by our secretary, Griff Bowdy. Um, Griff uh, is a, like Stefan, Griff is a great communicator, and he's very good at networking. Griff likes to have a holiday meal uh, in a central location, usually in and around Lexington, so central to the state of Kentucky, um, where he invites leaders from all the conservation organizations, NWTF, RMEF, LKS, Quail Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, you name it. Uh, we get together and just have a little fellowship, have a meal. We all, you know, do a little networking, hand, hand each other business cards and talk about the projects that we can collaborate on for the year. Um, so that's basically something we're going to do in July, August, September, October, November, December. So COVID-19 shut us down for a few months, but we are coming in hot, baby. Coming in hot. For the rest of the year. Um, watch Kentucky BHA because we will be working in your neck of the woods, I'm here to tell you. Um, so we both doubled down on mentoring. I'm going to take my guy again this year. Uh, I've got uh, another buddy. I'm taking elk hunting again. And once again, if you're out there listening, you hear this podcast, and there's, you know, you're an experienced person, and you're getting ready to go out west on your first big game hunt, and you just want to double-check your packing list, uh, reach out to us. We'll help you. If you're, you know, an experienced deer hunter, never turkey hunted, reach out to us. We'll help you. If you're an experienced turkey hunter, never deer hunted. It don't matter. If you're brand new to fishing, if you're brand new to hiking and camping, reach out and we will help you. Um, our public lands 
our public waters and access is what we focus on. And the more people we have out there enjoying it, the better it is for the rest of us in perpetuity. So, Stefan, that brings us basically to the end, man. Uh, what are your closing thoughts? Uh, well, again, I'd like to say thanks for having me on. Um, thanks for supporting the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers message. Uh, thanks for all that you do to for the chapter. Uh, the only thing that I would request is that uh, if you're not a member, again, go to backcountryhunters.org. Check that website out. Uh, if you have any questions, you can always email us at Kentucky at backcountryhunters.org, and we'll get back in touch with you. Um, for those of you who are engaged on social media, uh, the Instagram feed is Kentucky, spelled all the way out, so it's at K-E-N-T-U-C-K-Y-B-H-A. Uh, all one word. All one word. Uh, go back through our previous post. A lot of good information in there, um, and follow us. We'll make sure to keep you updated on not only on uh, national and state policy issues. Uh, we'll provide you with in, uh, recipes for your public land game that you've collected. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll keep you posted on when morels are popping, uh, when other mushrooms are coming up, uh, when to apply for out-of-state hunts, when to apply for in-state quota hunts. Um, just a really good source of information. Uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, it's our Facebook feed is Kentucky Chapter Backcountry Hunters um, and Anglers. So if you're uh, wanting to follow us on Instagram, it's the at symbol, Kentucky BHA, all one word. And our Facebook handle is Kentucky Chapter Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And that is where you will get the up to the minute, up to date no kidding dope on what we are into where we're going to be what the event's going to be and just as soon as we're cleared to go hot on pint nights we will be having some tuesday wednesday thursday get-togethers across the state where we have a beer and we don't stay long it's a work night but we get together we enjoy each other's company we talk about public lands we get the recommendations from our members about what they'd like to do on public lands. And that's how we came up with the Marion County WMA and State Forest boundary marking and scouting event as we had some people at a pint night say that they would really like to be better at scouting. So we put together a scouting class and put together a boundary marking event. And of course then COVID-19 hit and we didn't get to do it. So we're planning on doing that again next spring. Uh, just delayed it one year. Um, Steph and I, I have to tell you, I, um, you know, I'm I'm a U.S. Army infantry officer and uh, retired as a full bird colonel and been to airborne school, ranger school, a lot of stuff. Been to a lot of leadership stuff. But one of the things that they teach you about leadership is is part of leadership is followership. And uh, I don't want to blow sunshine up your butt, man, but I'm going to tell you on the air, it, it has been a pleasure to be your vice chair. Um, you, you provide purpose, direction, and motivation for our chapter. Um, you are a skilled communicator. I've seen you give speeches, passionate speeches about things that you care about. Um, so thank you. Oh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, not only to speak today, uh, but for uh, support and uh, helping me grow as a leader. Um, 
in my role as uh, the current chair of Kentucky BHA. So thank you for the compliment and thank you for your help. Right on, man. Pound it. Okay. um, So that brings us to the end of the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Once again, if you've, if you've got something you want to learn in the outdoors, reach out to us. We'll find somebody to help you. Um, the entry music and the going away music, so the prologue and the and the epilogue, so to speak, is uh, music by a young man named Grayson Jenkins. Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky, and Jenkins, just like Jenkins is spelled. So if you like his music, he's been gracious enough to allow us to use his music uh, to start and end the show. Please look him up on YouTube. It's the easiest way to find him, and you'll actually see his music videos, and then you can go from there with the rest of his music. Um, Also, um, we really don't have any sponsors, but we do have one business in Louisville that will give you a discount. Um, If you mention Colonel Abel or you mention um, the Outdoor Mentor Podcast, and that is Louisville Toppers. Uh, So if you need a camper cap, a tono cover, running boards, uh, you know, you want to add a light bar to the front of your truck or, or, you know, any kind of real serious upfitting for your pickup truck, SUV, or hell, if you even use an old timey station wagon to hunt out of like we used to use back in the day, you know, I mean... Or the four-door front-wheel drive sedan that I use as an undercover hunting vehicle. If if you would ever get your pickup truck fixed, you wouldn't have to use that Chevy. But uh, you didn't get stuck in the Daniel Boone. I was proud of you. you, you uh, but I'll the, have it ready by the time we go to Peabody. That way we can load that uh, eight-foot bed up with, with, trash, with trash and get, it, and get yeah. it off our public land. There you go. God bless you. But uh, if you want some upfitting done to your truck, especially if you need a, a camper cap or a tono cover, please go see uh, Walter. Uh, Walter has been a friend of mine. He's been working on my trucks for over 10 years. Uh, if you see my current truck, uh, he's done everything that's on that truck. The Yakima bars, the camper cap, the decked system, the bull bar, and the light bar on the front. All that was done by Walter and his team at Louisville Toppers. Uh, I, I will vouch for their work personally. Uh, if you go there and mention Colonel Abel or this podcast, you will get a discount. They're located at 4040 Preston Highway in Louisville, and you can find them uh, on the World Wide Web at Louisville Toppers, T-O-P-P-E-R-S, so the city of Louisville Toppers, all one word, uh, dot com. Uh, If there's anything about this podcast you want to talk about that uh, is not BHA related, uh, or if you just want to reach out to to me personally, I can be reached at ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at theslowhunt.com. Dot com ranger at the slow hunt.com and people have asked me why the slow hunt well the the answer is because i used to be fast and now that i'm almost 50 and have almost 25 years of being in the infantry i'm slow so it's ranger at the slow hunt.com and so this this podcast is part of the slow hunt llc slow is smooth and smooth is fast thanks for listening one two one two